Hey, Rubicon fans, it's Brian. If you're listening to this, then hopefully you already know that we've just launched a new weekly newsletter here at Crooked Media. It's called Big Tent. I write it. And my goal is to walk with you through the big debates unfolding among Democrats in real time, from the campaign trail to the Senate floor to the most productive of venues, Twitter. And I want to do that because the issues we argue about and how we work them out will both shape the future of the progressive movement we share and probably also help determine whether Donald Trump gets a second term or not. The first edition just came out on Friday, January 31st, but you can subscribe today at crooked.com slash big tent. Uh, I'm really psyched about this, so I hope you sign up and encourage people you know to sign up too. Not a single witness in the House record that they compiled and developed under their procedures that we've discussed and will continue to discuss provided any first-hand evidence that the president ever linked the presidential meeting to any investigations. This is Ambassador John Bolton. He was national security advisor to President Trump. He was in all the meetings in which the president's national security team discussed withholding aid from Ukraine in exchange for announcing investigations into the Bidens. Uh, we want a real and a fair trial, and in particular, we'd like to hear from John Bolton. Did he say, you've got to do an investigation or I won't give you money? No, he didn't do that. And there's no evidence. There's nobody, there's nobody that they had that said that. Right, but what if John Bolton did? But if the president did tell John Bolton that indeed there was a relationship between getting that information on the Bidens and, 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 and aid to the country, that wouldn't be enough for you to say, let's look into this more? No. The acquittal of Donald Trump will mark the end of this impeachment process. Much more importantly, it'll mark the dawning of a brave new world. For several days, Trump's lawyers insisted on... Well, a lot of nonsense, but two things in particular. First, that there's no evidence Trump ever conditioned military aid to Ukraine on Ukraine announcing it would investigate the Bidens. Second, that the Senate should not seek to hear from witnesses with firsthand knowledge of Trump's involvement in the scheme. In the middle of this not at all suspicious set of arguments, the New York Times broke the explosive news that former National Security Advisor John Bolton's forthcoming book, will fully contradict Trump's official defense. Republicans responded to this bombshell not by relenting on their cover-up, but by accelerating it. The Trump administration is trying to block publication of Bolton's book. Republican senators, particularly the most vulnerable ones, redoubled their commitment to hearing no witnesses. And Trump's lawyers adopted a new, terrifying argument. The president can abuse power in any way to help secure his own reelection so long as he thinks his election is in the national interest. If a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. The Republican Party now stands foursquare behind the view that presidents have dictatorial power to cheat in their own elections, at least so long as those presidents are Republican. We don't have to think too hard about how unacceptable this is. Here's Adam Schiff. See how you feel about this scenario. President Obama, on an open mic, says to Medvedev, Hey, Medvedev, I know you don't want me to send this military money to Ukraine because they're fighting and killing your people. I want you to do me a favor, though. I want you to do an investigation of Mitt Romney. Um, and I want you to announce you found 
uh, dirt on Mitt Romney. And if you're willing to do that, quid pro quo, I won't give Ukraine the money they need to fight you on the front line. Do any of us have any question that Barack Obama would be impeached for that kind of misconduct? By the standard Republicans now support, Joe Biden could win the election, Mitch McConnell could filibuster his agenda, and Joe Biden could retaliate by pressuring China to investigate McConnell, his wife Elaine Chao, and her family's shipping business. Short of Trump losing the election, will it be possible to go back? My guest this week is Susan Hennessy. She's executive editor of Lawfare and host of The Report. She's also the co-author of a new book called Unmaking the Presidency about the ways Trump has turned the core powers of the presidency into weapons. We already know many of the ways Trump has abused his powers. As Senate Republicans now abuse their powers, we'll discuss whether, along with Trump, they're unmaking the republic itself. I'm Brian Boitler, and this is Rubicon. Sustainable sneakers are the footwear of the future. There's a big waiting list for these low-impact kicks. If they're good enough for John Hamm, they're good enough for me. Karayuma is a direct-to-consumer sustainable sneaker brand. Their high- and low-top styles are good-looking, crazy comfy, and consciously made. They just launched a 100% vegan and carbon-neutral sneaker, EB, which means Earth. It's made with perfect-fit 3D bamboo knit and recycled PET, green EVA outsoles made from sugarcane, a cork and organic Mamona oil insole, plus recycled and recyclable laces, threads, and labels. Their packaging is made from recycled and 100% recyclable materials. They make up for carbon emissions released during transportation by purchasing carbon offsets, creating a shipping footprint balance of zero. All their styles come with their signature crazy comfy green insoles, making them easy to wear from your 8 a.m. all-hands meeting to cocktail hour and beyond. Karyuma ships worldwide, and here in the U.S., you can use express shipping, which will deliver to your doorsteps in two to four business days. If your pair doesn't fit perfectly, you can return them free of charge. For a limited time, Rubicon listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your first pair of Karyuma sneakers. Go to cariuma.com slash Rubicon to get 15% off. That's C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Rubicon for a limited time 15% off today. Susan Hennessy, welcome to Rubicon. Thanks for having me. So we're at a bit of a disadvantage in that we're recording this episode on Thursday. But the key vote on whether we're going to have anything like a fair trial uh, in the Senate for Donald Trump's impeachment won't happen until Friday. Uh, and we may not even know how that vote is going to shake out until it actually happens. So for the purposes of this conversation, I want to focus for the most part on the proposition Trump and his lawyers have put forth and how Republicans in particular have reacted to it. Um, because at bottom, Republicans seem prepared to accept it, um, whether there are witnesses or not. Uh, uh, eventually, this story ends uh, without 67 votes to remove Donald Trump from office. So how would you characterize the proposition that that they're preparing themselves to affirm? Yeah, so nobody ever wants to be considered naive in this town. Um, and so I, I say this with um, with a risk of being proven wrong in pretty rapid order. Um, I still just refuse to believe that the Senate would actually be willing to not 
even call John Bolton as a witness because that would be an expression that impeachment is not a genuine constitutional remedy. It's not a real check on executive power. It's just a raw measurement of how many members of the president's own party sit in the Senate. And I think what we're seeing play out right now um, is the terrible choice that Republican senators have created for themselves. Because on one hand, um, they want to be perceived as uh, you know undertaking a legitimate investigation, a legitimate trial, even though they know full well that they intend to acquit the president at the end of this. And, and of course, um, I think something like 75% of Americans say uh, they believe that additional witnesses should be called. Um, but the senators have a really big problem because John Bolton has come out and he said, um, I have a story to tell and it's really bad. And it shatters a lot of the implausible deniability that you've been clinging to. And I'm going to tell that story eventually. I'm going to tell it in a book. I'm going to tell it in an interview. This story is coming out. And so what Republican senators have to decide is, do they want to be confronted with that story under oath and then have to actually cast a vote? Not a furrowed brow in a Senate hallway, not a disapproving tweet about being gravely concerned, but an up or down vote on the question of whether or not this is acceptable, whether or not this is tolerable. And I think if we get down to it and we're the balance of fears between between Senate Republicans of being perceived as uh, not undertaking a legitimate investigation versus the consequence of undertaking a legitimate investigation. I, I think that's the anguish that we're seeing playing out right now. Um, I, I continue to think uh, and to hope that there will be four senators who realize that uh, this is just uh, not that this that this impeachment trial simply would not be perceived as legitimate by the American public if John Bolton doesn't come to testify. But for the purposes of this recording, I think that we have to, you know, we're in the dark for the next 24 hours um, as to how this is actually going to play out. And by the time people listen to this, that question will have been answered one way or another. Um Either we're going to be in a world where John Bolton is going to testify or we're going to be in one where this is all going to end and we're going to figure out what his story is later. I just think that whichever happens, there's one more vote after that, which is a a quit or convict. And even today, I think I count enough Republican senators who have essentially said, even if what Bolton's book is purported to, to claim is true, I'm, we're just not going to convict Trump. And so if we just, you know, leap ahead to the assumption that he's acquitted, what do you interpret Republicans to be saying by having acquitted him? Does that make sense? Yeah, I interpret Republicans to be saying that it is tolerable and acceptable for the president of the United States to use the powers of his office to extort a foreign leader into becoming an opposition researcher for his political campaign. I, I would say that these senators are voting to say that it is acceptable to have a president, and, and this really goes to sort of the core argument we, we lay out in this book, but a president who does not view the interests of the office of the presidency as in any way distinct from the interests of the occupant, that those are completely merged in political interests and financial interests. And, and this really goes to the heart of Trump's vision of the presidency, this sense that the purpose of the presidency is to serve the president, and it serves the public only coincidentally or when 
inconvenient or as an afterthought. And that isn't a question of expanding sort of the edges of executive power, the, the ordinary sort of areas in which we're used to debating, uh, you know, sort of the limits of presidential power. It, it goes to the very core and it says that the president can use the these really astonishingly uh, empowering authorities that the Constitution vests in him um, for his own purposes and not on behalf of the country. And, and if that is true, and if the Senate is willing to tolerate that, that has long-term structural ramifications across lots of different axes. And, and the Senate may, may try to sort of kid themselves by saying, oh, no, we're making a very narrow vote about the nature of this form of an impeachable offense or that form. But, but this is a blunt instrument. You're either impeaching and removing the president or you aren't. And so they, they really are fooling themselves if they don't think that, that the ultimate uh, uh, statement that they're making is this is acceptable and they are accepting it. The, I'm glad you brought up John Bolton for this reason, because you're right. You could, in theory, imagine a situation in which four plus Republican senators, not enough to convict him, but enough to say there's a real problem here, get together and say, look, like we're not going to there's no reason to uh, to, to draw out this proceeding indefinitely. But we acknowledge something terrible happened here. And so our interest in, is in what can we do as legislators with power to say, OK, we're not going to remove him from office, but we are going to take some steps to make sure that this doesn't become the norm, at least in our party, and then censuring him, you know, uh, ramping up uh, regular oversight activities. And that's just not in the cart. Nobody's even discussing that as like an option, um, which is why I feel like the emergence of Bolton and, 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 and what we believe we know is in his book is so revelatory um, is like most Trump scandals seem to follow this pattern where he and all of the principals deny whatever they're alleged to have done outright. Then they say, well, it didn't it didn't happen. But if it did happen, it wouldn't be so bad. And then finally, like I did it and it was awesome. Um, and to me, what's striking about the role the Bolton revelations have played is how how quickly they moved us from step two to step three, where where Republicans and Trump's lawyers have been kind of stuck saying quid pro quos are normal. But even here, Democrats haven't proved that Trump ever explicitly linked Ukraine aid to sham Biden investigations. Bolton's, you know, book, the details of what's in Bolton's book come out. And he says that's all bullshit. And actually, Trump did exactly that. And almost overnight, we we get to Trump and everyone around him kind of claiming dictatorial power to cheat in his own election which leaves no space for any kind of intermediate remedy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think it does. Look, I, I think what has been happening is, you know, the idea that there were there were senators who, um, you know, in good faith were looking at the uh, the record produced by the House and they saw this, you know, evidence and, and some of it was somewhat troubling. And gosh, it really does look like the president did want investigations into his political opponent, Joe Biden and his son, or at least the announcement of those investigations. And gosh, it really does look like the president of the United States froze military aid, uh, you know, to Ukraine and, and then lied about it and, and hid why he did it from Congress. But ah, shucks, I just don't know how we could possibly tie those two 
things together, which, by the way, is what people like Kurt Volker attempted to testify to of like, oh, well, we knew there was this one bad thing happening. We knew there was this other bad thing happening. But you're telling me these two bad things were actually about the same thing. Right. So the whole game has been this completely implausible story that somehow these two things were not connected. And here's John Bolton coming forward and saying they're connected and I can testify to what the president actually said, putting both of these things in the exact same sentence. And what that does is it pops this sort of implausible deniability that we've seen so many actors operating in, in bad faith. And we should acknowledge that they're pretending, right? It's not that they actually, they're, they're actually stunned by this new revelation. Uh, they're just pretending because they know that they eventually have, are going to vote to acquit the president of the United States. And so the problem is, is that that now requires a pivot, right? You can't just say, well, of course, it would be incredibly disturbing if the president tied military aid to abusive investigations, something that Lindsey Graham and many others actually said at the outset of uh, sort of the revelations of this scandal, uh, you know, but we're not going to call a witness before the Senate who is who's a person who's in a position to actually tie those two things together. You can't make that argument plausibly. Uh, and so instead, you have to move into this really astonishing constitutional argument. And, and really, that is the heart of the argument. The heart of the argument is that the president of the United States is allowed to use the powers of his office for any purpose he'd like, so long as he can articulate at least some rationale for why it was in fact on behalf of the public interest, even if there's also a corrupt motive present. present. And it doesn't matter how, how implausible or contradicted by the documentary uh, record that sort of that rationale of why he was doing it on behalf of the public might be, so long as you can say something. And really what we're talking about here is, is a completely unconstrained executive, an executive that does not need to fear impeachment and removal in the exercise of his office, so long as he knows that the Senate is controlled by members of his own party. So in researching on making the presidency, were you struck by any historical examples of the presidency changing in alarming ways, but in ways that didn't ever stick? Um, and in hindsight, we can kind of say we dodged a bullet. Yeah, so Andrew Johnson is probably the best example of this. So Johnson actually is impeached, although not removed. He's the first president to be impeached. Um, uh, and he's sort of is a Trumpy figure, right? He's uh, he's a demagogue. He he lies. He, you know, he insults his political opponents. He's actually one of the articles of impeachment is um, is for uh, uh, the, the way he speaks and sort of in his language. I mean, sort of for, for being a little bit like a like a Trump rally actually was was one of the articles of impeachment, um, and, and of course for ignoring the law, ignoring the constraints of the law, ignoring the um, the legislature as a co-equal branch, and, and he's impeached, and it's just kind of a blip, right? Um, people talk about Andrew Johnson now, but but just as a negative example, right? The kind of president that you don't want to be, and so you know we do have the ability in, in our constitutional structure to have anomalies because when presidents aren't reelected or when they're impeached and when they they pay both political and and, uh, and Structural prices um, in in abusing their office in abusing their office we we are able to course correct um, but there's a lot of other examples in which we see that the presidency is a changeable institution an institution that has changed dramatically over time um, and that we can't always tell uh, we we can't always tell in the moment the the consequences of the long term consequences of of breaking down particular norms so even whenever we see norms being broken 
broken down um, for good policy reasons, for things that we might uh, we might agree with. Those end up playing out uh, in, in ways we might not have foreseen. So um, I think the best example of this is uh, Jimmy Carter comes in. So constitutionally, the president is supposed to nominate judges, and then he sends them to the Senate for uh, you know for advice and consent. And really, since the the beginning of the republic, um, since the George Washington's administration, um, what had happened is the Senate would come up with the names of judges from their home state, and then they'd send it over to the president, and the president would say yes or no. So sort of this inverse process. And Jimmy Carter comes along and he says, yeah, no, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to keep, I'm going to start nominating judges like the Constitution tells me because I care about women and minorities on the bench, right? It's not about ideology. Don't worry. This isn't about politics. I'm going to be really careful to not insert politics into my uh, into my nominating decisions, but I, but I want it for this good policy reason. And then Ronald Reagan comes along and he says, yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. I want to nominate my judges too, but I'm going to do it for judicial philosophy, right? This this notion of, of, cons- of judicial conservatism and originalism, which is, of course, just politics in disguise. And then George H.W. Bush comes along and says, oh, I like that too. I'm not just going to do it for circuit court judges, though. I'm going to do it for district court judges as well. So in a relatively short period of time, we have the entire nominating and confirmation structure of judges and really the, the character of the federal judiciary transformed entirely. And so whenever we think, you know, we, we tend to focus only on Trump's most egregious breaches, questions like, can he abuse the power of his office to, uh, you know, to, to get a foreign uh, government to, to investigate his political opponents? But there are a hundred different sort of norms breaches that are playing out at the exact same time that the that Congress is really shrugging at, that the media can't keep up with, and that if they if they do not go if that the media is sort of shrugging with and that uh, if the if the people essentially ratify by reelecting Trump into office will transform the nature of the American presidency forever I, I ask because on the one hand I mean obviously Donald Trump isn't the first politician to to break norms but he is in some ways, I think, a truly sui generis figure, right? Like many of the Republicans who have tried to imitate the way he does politics have been obliterated at the polls. Um, and there aren't really many internationally famous, megalomaniacal, billionaire racists with no shame who could like repeat what he's done. Um, but his Republican allies are kind of actively changing the rules of the road so that even run-of-the-mill Republicans can can rule beyond the law. And it's it's unclear to me how we can go back if the the public at large kind of recognizes that this isn't okay and it's not the way that should be done, things should be done, but the ruling party is complicit in in in, in embracing it and, and kind of building it into the system as a precedent. Yeah, so look, in a democracy, eventually the people will get the presidency they want and they will get the presidency that they care to defend. And the only way to correct for Trump's breaches and correct for Trump's breaches in the long term is decisive electoral rejection. And not just electoral rejection of the president, but also electoral rejection of the, of the of Republicans in Congress. Because um, that really is the way that we fundamentally defend 
defend norms and, and defend concepts like ethics and decency and, and truth-telling uh, and, and being uh, faithful stewards of the public trust is through these sort of these electoral safeguards. And so um, I, I think the way to think about sort of the election is it is a necessary but not sufficient condition. So if we don't uh, have people voted out of office, it, it will be very, very difficult to go back and rebuild this because in a way they will have shown proof of concept that you can do this and still be elected. However, even if uh, Trump is rejected and, and even if maybe some of his um, uh, his closest imitators are, are rejected as well, uh, or if instead the sort of the squish votes, right, the people who uh, didn't fully embrace his vision uh, and yet also weren't willing to discharge their constitutional obligations and duties, people like Susan Collins, perhaps. Um, sorry, I totally switched that. Even if those people like Susan Collins, perhaps, even if those people uh, are voted out of office, there still is a tremendous amount of work to do afterwards. And that's the work of reestablishing the norms. And, and the next president is going to have, frankly, some genuinely difficult decisions to make. So um, a daily White House press briefing. What a pain in the butt. Who would tell a president, yeah, so you you don't have to do a press briefing because if you don't do it and, and you don't have to tell the truth and you don't have to have any accountability because it turns out you can totally get away with that. Um, but you should do it anyway just because, like, it's a good thing to do, even though you'll pay a huge price and it'll, it'll be incredibly di- difficult for you to survive any scandal that might come up or, or basically shirk accountability and transparency. Right? It might be tempting for the next president to say, well, all right, let's give them, like, once a week and, and tell them to be happy about it, or once a month. Once a month, but we promise we actually will tell the truth. Um, or the next president might come in and say, you know, look, this whole 10-year FBI director thing, um, yeah, that seemed kind of important, and you know, but it turns out that actually the FBI director is just a presidential appointee, that the president can fire an FBI director and get away with it. And Chris Ray seems like a perfectly nice person, but I want my own person because I have my own vision of how, of how criminal justice should be executed, and, and I want my own guy in that seat. And, and that will be the moment in which the new norm will be established. It's not the initial breach. It's the decision to not constrain moving forward and not to self-constrain moving forward. And, and that's why I, I think it's going to be a, a legitimately difficult question because it's hard to ask Democrats to play by the rules when the other side doesn't. Um, but the, the long-term consequences and the long-term character of the office really are going to be what's at stake. Right. I mean, I, I, I take a blood election to kind of be a necessary but not sufficient condition to setting things right, both for what you said is that it's very hard for presidents to to sort of right-size their own office after it's been oversized by, you know, somebody like Donald Trump. But also, you know, Obama won a very decisive election in 2008, and the sort of zeitgeist of the moment, the kind of candidate he was, he didn't want to have a period of reflection or of examination of, of what had happened in the in the prior administration, the different kinds of abuses, but still very severe ones. And I feel like there's a lesson there is that unless you have uh, uh, after the election, uh, a, a president or a party in place that's willing to do that kind of reflective work and and make sure that there's accountability, not just for the person who lost the election, but for everyone who enabled them, for the people in Congress who look the other way or or try to enable it, that your your 
you're teaching these people that, well, you might lose an election, but that just means try harder next time. Press the lever harder. Um, and I, I have... <laughs> I'm just not super optimistic about our political system, and I, I don't just mean Congress and the White House, but the media and other institutions in Washington. Uh, if we're fortunate enough to see Trump uh, defeated at the polls, uh, kind of creating an environment where that kind of look back is possible, but I'd like to believe. Yeah, so um, I'm sort of a believer in um, in – personal responsibility, not in the Republican Party of personal responsibility sense of the word, but in the sense that um, all actors need to engage in a deep examination of, of their role in bringing us to this moment. Um, so whenever I, I sort of uh, consider the answer to that question, um, not from the perspective of the media, but really from the perspective of um, uh, legal academics and, and public legal scholars, um, because I, I think we have contributed um, in, in the nature in which we've discussed things like executive power, for example, or I'm sorry, the way we've discussed things like executive privilege, for example. Um, so having this really robust de debate about, uh, you know, how far we can push executive privilege, it, it works in a system in which every side is playing their role, right? So Congress is pushing as hard as they can for documents uh, and, and testimony, um, and, and the executive is, is pushing back, right? And, and the judiciary are being um, reasonable actors that aren't engaging in a form of executive deference that, that is really about blinding themselves to the reality of motivation. Um, you know, that, that worked reasonably well well when you had Barack Obama in office. It worked reasonably well when you had George W. Bush in office, right? It's worked whenever you had prior presidents that engaged in sort of a baseline conception of civic virtue. It doesn't work anymore. Um, and that means that we can no longer rely on this sort of structural tension in, in pushing arguments to the limit. Instead, there needs to be a return to holistic examination, right? So this notion that if the president of the United States can control who gets to see what information and when, absolutely, on an absolute basis, which is what the Trump administration is asserting, right? They get to decide what they tell Congress. The notion of congressional oversight doesn't meaningfully exist any longer. It means that congressional oversight is voluntary and that Cong Congress can oversee the president and the executive branch when the president feels like it and when he wants them to see it. Um, this notion of uh, executive deference that we've seen from, uh, from the judicial branch, right, something that's now been taken past its breaking point, that you have Trump say, we're banning all Muslims from coming in the country. And then you have DOJ walk in the room and they say, no, 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 we can totally understand how you would think that this had something <laughs> to do with Muslims. We do recognize that these are mostly Muslim, Muslim majority countries, but don't worry, had nothing to do with any of that. And then you have the president tweet it out, nope, totally about the Muslims. <laughs> or wink, we all know what that means, right? And actually admit that it was all BS the whole time, right? And so what was in the past this idea of the judicial branch confining itself to its own function and not and, and assuming that the executive branch was in the best position to have particular uh, particular information. Instead, executive deference becomes a ratification of the idea that 
that uh, the president can lie to the judiciary. And in some ways, it's actually the same argument that we're seeing playing out in the Senate, right? This idea that uh, it's impossible to examine the president's motivations, the idea that it's legitimate for the president to use and misuse the powers of his office so long as he can articulate some uh, legitimate rationale. And, and the problem is whenever you have the kind of really incredibly empowered executive that we have intentionally designed in our structural system, and you take out this obligation of good faith, and at the same time, you have the other branches unwilling to do legitimate testing and, and legitimate uh, checking of that power, you know, that is an incredibly, um, you know, just dangerous situation. And, and, and I think we should be clear-eyed about that moving forward. So if decisive defeat at the polls is a necessary predicate for getting us anywhere uh, back anywhere near a semblance of normalcy. Can there be a free and fair election in the U.S. if the ruling party has voted to affirm that its leader can cheat however he wants in his reelection so long as he has some, you know, weakly plausible pretext for doing so? And I, I don't even mean if Trump tries new schemes and abuses to cheat. Um, I just mean how badly has the legitimacy of the system been damaged already simply by the ruling party embracing this idea? Yeah, so I think it's um, it's profoundly destructive over the long term. Um, I do think we should uh, think about impeachment um, sort of in its historical context, which is the history of impeachment in the United States is the history of quote unquote failed impeachments, impeachment without removal. Um, and so to some degree, um, there has been a checking function and it's almost sort of miraculous that we're here. And, you know, this feels like a really pessimistic day in, in, in DC right now. But um, I think we should embrace a little bit of the optimism here, right? That that actually something that seemed impossible a few months ago um, actually did come to pass, that, that the president of the United States was actually in impeached and he was impeached for this behavior. And so even if the Senate acquits him, as, as they likely will, and even if they acquit them without calling witnesses such that the American people don't fully understand uh, what happened and, and aren't able to, to have full accountability and transparency in the election, even if that happens, the statement that we're left with is still, this is impeachable conduct. Um, and that does have a deterring function uh, to, to future presidents who, who realize, hey, if, if I engage in this behavior, um, I'm, I might face impeachment and I might have uh, I might have to face a trial and, and it might be very politically damaging and embarrassing to my legacy and embarrassing, um, uh, you know, and, and make in, and creates conditions in which it's impossible for me to uh, oversee a legislative agenda that I care about. Um, you know, so, so I do still think we're in a world in which um, there are, at least in, uh, in the immediate term, some constraints that are functional. The question is what happens over the long term. And, and one thing about this president that um, does appear to be pathological is his need to constantly up the ante to every time he gets away with something to do something worse. And so that's why I think um, one of the most perilous days will be the day after the, the Senate votes to acquit the president, because I, that may well be the day that he once again, and remember, he's already done this once before, goes on television and asks China 
to to investigate his political opponents or picks up the phone uh, behind the scenes and asks uh, the autocratic dictators that he has these close personal relationships uh, to engage in their own abuses. If he hasn't already done it. If, if he hasn't already done it. And I think this is critical as well. If this is what we're seeing and the president's defense to this is it, there's, this is a perfect phone call. There's nothing wrong with this. And the message he's getting from members of his own party is there's nothing wrong with this. What else is happening that we don't know about, right? Th- this was all happening out in public. Rudy Giuliani was screaming, I did it, I did it, for months, uh, you know, on the front page of the newspaper uh, before before the House of Representatives was actually really sort of took note of what was unfolding. Um, you know, and so I, I, that to me, I think, is something we uh, – we really, really need to, to think about and, and to grapple with of um, what happens when Trump does the next thing. Uh, and, and we now know that the Senate uh, is willing to basically give it the thumbs up. I think that's a good note to end on. Um, Susan Hennessy, thank you for coming on Rubicon. The book is called Unmaking the Presidency. Uh, glad you could do this. Thanks for having me.